Welcome to Raising Connections. I'm your host, Rayshan Mayer. This is the program where we talk about your critters, companions, commerce, and agriculture, and all of the connections between them. This morning, we have a fun and interesting guest. Kevin Addicts is joining us. We first met Kevin when he was heading up the trade group Grow and Fortify, value-added agriculture in Maryland. Today, we find Kevin Addicts as Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Maryland. Let's find out about these spotted lanternflies. Maybe we can talk about what this looks like because it is sort of moth-like, it is sort of fly-like, but it's really a leafhopper. It is, and and a leafhopper is a way to describe an insect that is not kind of ground-dwelling and not necessarily uh, is it a flyer. It's something that it jumps from plant to plant, and if there's an updraft, it can cruise quite a bit away because it's got uh, wings and it does flutter as if it's flying, although on its own, it doesn't get very far. In its early stages, it looks like a little black and then red bug in its second and third instar phases with beautiful spots on it. And it has a black base and, and then turns red. It's very, very beautiful. And then in its fourth instar, which is its adult phase, it has these gray brown spotted wings and then when it spreads its top wings its under set of wings are bright red and um, that is you know traditionally a warning sign to predators that they should probably stay away the spotted lantern moths are actually very pretty and they hop i know i was out visiting some wineries and then i put up fence in our lower pasture and while we were doing that i got pelted in both places the winery and our lower pasture by the spotted lantern moths or flies they actually kind of jump you. And I was surprised yeah, not, by that. It kind of hurt, but not really. They just, it was surprising. Yeah, I'm not sure that they are intentionally coming at you. I think they get startled and, you know, their one big move is to jump. And Got so it. when you get too close to them and they think that you're coming at them, they will jump and they make a, a, a little clicking sound as, as they kind of release from the tree or plant and try to take flight. But yes, if you're walking down a vineyard and it's an area that's inundated, you will get pelted by spotted lanternflies. But they don't hurt you. They aren't going to bite you like a mosquito or they don't have an impact directly on humans. Indirectly, absolutely. But they're not going to injure us. No, that's that's true. They don't. They have no interest in us whatsoever. They don't bite. They crawl. You know, I will, for demonstration purposes, pick them up, and it will be quite happy sitting on my hand or uh, shirt or sweater for an hour. It's not interested in us. It's it's interested in feeding sources and mating, of course, a circle of life. Uh, But it's it's one primary impact on humans is its waste product as it's consuming the nutrients from plants. It is almost constantly squirting out a substance that is, you know, it's waste to them and it it comes out in kind of the form of a sugary, sticky sap. Okay. If you've parked your cars under that, your car will have this uh, sticky sap all over it and it's pretty difficult to get rid of if you have furniture, if you, you know, are are trying to sit out or, you know, hanging on your hammock under a tree, uh, you're going to get covered by this. And it's, you know, the sap is a problem, but what the sap attracts are bees and wasps. And so so, this makes so much sense because I couldn't figure out why I had parked in an open field and got pine sap on my car. It probably wasn't pine sap. 
it could very well have been spotted lanternfly sap. And it's interesting, in some places in Pennsylvania, there have been some beekeepers that have noted that their bees, when the spotted lanternflies came in, began consuming the the, the honey or the, the sap from these spotted lanternflies. And the honey the bees were producing was significantly darker and the taste had changed. The, the flavor profile had changed. So it's very interesting the impact it's having on kind of the larger natural ecosystem and community. So I have to ask this. So if the bees and wasps are attracted to it because of the sugary nature of it, when it's consumed by a honeybee and they produce the honey and it changes the taste, is there a toxicity to that honey? There's no toxicity to the honey. In fact, I've had the honey and it it just is a more earthier, rustic flavored honey than you would get from, say, a a flower uh, or, or, you know, typical pollinator honey. But there's no toxicity. Okay, that makes that's good. So we can still our honey is safe. We just have a new flavor. (laughs) Exactly. A, A slightly more rustic profile. The next piece of this was why are spotted lantern moths bad? It seems like, so they're new, they're an immigrant, they've come to the this United States, they came unwelcomed, they were not visaed, and they've come to our residences, they jump on us, but they don't do anything, they leave the sap, and that can be a mess, but the bees are eating it and making product out of it. Why are we so worried about this? So anytime there is a new species that is uh, coming into an ecosystem, it's cause for concern because you don't know the impacts it will have. It will take some time to learn the impacts. And you don't know what secondary tertiary impacts it could have. Honey is an example of that. But what we're very concerned about is we've got a very vibrant orchard and vineyard industry in the mid-Atlantic region. And certainly throughout the country, a very vibrant uh, orchard and vineyard landscape. And the lanternfly, for better or worse, uh, in addition to a certain tree that is also invasive that comes from its home territory that it loves and we think thrives on, it's called the tree of heaven, the Atlantis I know those well. I hate them. Yes. (laughs) I hate the strong word, but yes. Oh, my. No, you can hate it. It's very difficult to get rid of and and it serves no real purpose in our current ecosystem, but it really attracts the lanternfly. So it's attracted to that plus fruit, nut, and grape vines and trees. And so grape vines, for example, it feeds on them and it swarms into vineyards. And what it's doing is it's it's using its uh, proboscis, which is basically a needle-shaped mouth part, which goes right into the vine, basically eats the nutrients out of that vine, weakens the vine. And if it's managed and the population of lanternflies is maintained, the vineyard should survive. It may have less of a yield in grapes next year, but it should survive. The one kind of big question mark, and we saw some vineyards in Pennsylvania succumb to the lanternfly. It wasn't the lanternfly itself. It was the fact that the vine had been weakened, and then there was an incredibly harsh winter, and the vine could not withstand, because it was weak, could not withstand the cold temperatures, and then you had kind of mass die-off of vineyards. But the timing of when the lanternfly hits these crops is problematic. You have to be careful how you're managing insects and pests when you get near a harvest window for when you'll be harvesting the fruit, the nuts, or the grapes. And so that's really the danger of the lanternfly is that it could weaken the vines at the worst time leading into winter. That makes a lot of sense. So it's, it's a load effect. So it's just one more thing that is reducing volume, reducing crops. So the farmers or the vintners are not getting as much robust product as they normally would. So the 
income from those products is lessened because the vines are weak. But also getting an established vine is tough or an established tree because not only you have that upfront investment of the growing time. We had a program on Christmas trees and we learned that the trees grow 10 to 15 years before they're harvested. So there are lots of time spent behind the scenes getting these trees and vines to productivity only to have something come along and then literally suck the life out of them. Exactly. I mean, you, you, you said it exactly right. And, and vines, unlike many crops, which are annual vines and fruit trees, as you noted, are perennials and they take three to five years before they begin fruiting, sometimes longer, depending upon the variety of fruit or nut. And if you have two or three really bad summers and falls of lanternfly feasting, and then you have two or three bad winters, you, you could risk losing not just the crop, but the plant itself. And when you lose a perennial fruit crop, then you're set back potentially six or eight years. And so that's the concern among the industry about these very attractive animals. However, there is an opportunity here, and that is for natural predation. And so we're beginning to see that take effect. I think there would be two ways to limit the effect. One would be natural predation, but what about insecticides? Is it a two-prong or is there only one way to do this or one way better than the other? Help me through this. Well, yeah, there's a few ways to do it. If, if you have a pest, one way is to physically control the pest through chemical applications or other kind of manual physical opportunities. And so that could be vacuuming them. That could be spraying them down. It, it could be in any, any manner of kind of physical barrier. Beyond that, there is the opportunity for pests to come at them. And that could be a local pest or that could be an introduced pest. So we know that in Southeast Asia, they have natural predators. Okay. And so there's an opportunity to introduce that natural predator, which we don't do lightly. Is there takes, any chance takes, that the stink bug is a natural predator of these things? They're all from the same area, the, right? The stink bug is not a natural predator, but we have seen that birds in areas that have been inundated over a one or two year period, birds eventually kick in and begin predating on lanternflies. We've also seen chickens. We've seen praying mantis. So there are things that are natural predators and they will kick in over time. But you have to get through the spotted lanternflies defenses. You have to get past the fact that, you know, they've got bright red wings and, and nature knows you shouldn't eat brightly colored things. Once you do, you start telling your offspring, hey, that thing over there, it's pretty tasty. And they're pretty big in size, so that'd be a nice meal. It is a, pr a pretty good meal, I would guess, if you're that size looking at, at these spotted lanternflies. And I, I will tell you that it's not unlike what happens with cicadas. And one of the reasons that cicadas are on such a multi-year cycle is that that outwits the predators. If you're coming back every 13 or 17 years, the memory of consuming those is gone from the population of birds and squirrels and your dog, whatever it might be. And so when they reemerge, it's a new pest and the ecosystem doesn't know what to do with it. And so the cicadas can feed and breed and do what they uh, need to do with impunity before nature figures out what to do with them. Interesting. So nature has many, many ways of taking care of and keeping populations going. I hadn't thought about losing the memory and cicadas being part of that. Interesting. 
Earlier in the conversation, you had said that the tree of heaven or the ailanthus, they're often finding it in weeds. They're on the roadsides. We have lots of them around, and it's a preferred food for the spotted lanternflies. Is there a movement to remove the ailanthus from the areas where crops are? There is a concerted effort, a pretty deep concerted effort to remove this tree from anywhere near crops, so along tree lines and hedgerows and along the roadways where these agricultural products would be potentially transported. Okay, so let me go back just a little bit. The spotted lanternflies eggs came into the United States on a load of stone in Philadelphia. What do these eggs look like? They're not showing up in a carton, I'm pretty sure. So they are not showing up in a carton. When we come back, let's find out how those eggs really came in and whether or not they were actually in a carton like chicken eggs are. Join me, Rayshan Mayer, from Mariah Bellmanor Kennel for our new adventure, Living Life Tales Up podcast, combining everyday life with what goes on at the kennel and farm, a bit of humor, some ideas, and some positive happy bubbles. We're living tails up, nose down, and staying on track. We hope to see you on Living Life Tales Up for five to ten minutes worth of happy, happy bubbles shooting out there in the atmosphere. See you soon. Welcome back to Raising Connections. This morning we're talking about the spotted lanternfly and why we're all hearing about it and what is so important. Kevin Addicts, Secretary of Agriculture, welcome in. Thank you, thank you. The eggs arrived in Philadelphia. We don't think it was flies that came in. We think it was eggs on a load of stone. What do these eggs look like? So the eggs look like a little smear of gray putty and they will be deposited and and laid upon any surface, any hard surface. And so if you're in an area that has lantern flies, you'll see them on the underside of branches. You'll see them on the bark of trees. You'll see them on bleachers at schools and fence posts and even vehicles. Anywhere that the lantern fly can land when it's ready to lay eggs, it will do so. It will find a sturdy surface and and lay these eggs. And, And one of the primary primary ways to mitigate its spread is to look for these and scrape these egg masses off. And they're really hardy. So what we recommend is dropping them uh, in some sort of a solution, alcohol or other liquid that is able to take care of them. The sap that we talked about earlier that the spotted lanternfly produces, is that in the egg clutch? Is that what makes it so difficult to remove? No, so that the sap is coming from the adults. Once they lay the eggs, it looks like a, a little smudge of uh, gray putty with some ridges or stripes on it. And they're not difficult to remove. They're difficult to kill, unfortunately. And so I tell my team and I tell folks I talk to, if you see that egg mass, uh, first of all, if you see a spotted lantern fly, you know, do us a favor and, and squish it. There are many others <laughs> out there, but do us a favor and squish it. And then beyond that, every egg mass will have 30 to 50 to 75 of next year's lantern flies in it. So that, that's a great way if you can see those, scrape them, and let's help save the next generation of vineyards and, and plants from this temporary scourge. So here on the radio, we can talk about it. We can give people a visual picture. But if they want to find out what these egg masses truly look like, where can we find a picture of them? 
One of the best things is to just head to your search engine, type in spotted lanternfly. University of Maryland, Maryland Department of Agriculture, and Penn State are the leading resources for this because it came in through Pennsylvania and next spread into Maryland and now is, is being found in many parts across the country due to the transportation networks. That's that's how it's making its way around. But get a visual by, by checking out Penn State or even on MDA's site, uh, mda.maryland.com. Gov, and you'll see lots of information about what they look like at, at their various stages. They don't turn into the moth that is, you know, the moth-looking creature, the spotted lanternfly adult phase until June, July, maybe even later. It's earlier in the season you start seeing the nymphs, and that's a great time to, to catch them. When I was looking at pictures, one of the things that went through my mind was the nymphs, that black bug-looking a strange dinosaur-looking bug with a red on it yes. looks a yes. whole lot like the wheel bugs or the assassin bugs in their nymphal stages or their instar stages. It does. I've, I've had people say that I have big fleas crawling on my trees, and I said, no, you have lanternflies in their early stage. But yes, they do look fairly prehistoric, somewhere between an assassin bug and a stink bug. And they're really, really attractive, but they're super nimble at that stage. They're not as nimble as adults, but as the young nymphs, they can jump pretty far and they're harder to see. So what we've recommended for our vineyards, that's a great time to be uh, mitigating them. And they're not hard to deal with. We have a vineyard in Harford County that sprays a base of corn oil and some other very, very benign compound and that that manages them. Um, at that stage, it's it's easy to manage them. As you begin to fruit and you get closer to harvest, that's when you need to start worrying about what you're spraying. Interesting. So I have to ask: Does the corn oil cause them to slide down like you would a greased pole, or does it prevent them from feeding on the tree or vine? You know, that is above my pay grade. But my understanding is it is both a physical barrier that that just from a tactile standpoint, they no longer like the vine, but also if you do spray them, that that will take care of them. They'll fall off, can't jump anymore. Interesting. Um, but again, thinking about something like that versus a pesticide. Absolutely. Wouldn't we rather do something natural? And we have, we've had vineyards who would go through with just an air blaster to blast them onto the ground. And then right behind the air blaster, they've got uh, one of those billy goat vacuum machines that you would normally suck up leaves with, but instead they're sucking up the lantern flies. So it's it's anything you can do to knock back the population and obviously do it in as benign a way possible because, you know, everything has impacts. So the, the less you spray, the better. And no one wants to spray because of the environment and also no one wants to spend the money on spray. But if you could air blast and, and you know, use a piece of equipment to vacuum, that's a good way to do it. My team looks like, you know, modern day Ghostbusters when they go out into a vineyard because they'll all have backpack vacuums on and that's what they're doing. They're vacuuming up adult lanternflies. I love that idea. My grandmother used to walk through the pole beans and the tomatoes, taking off the tomato caterpillars and picking off the bean beetles. Just it's a more updated version of that. She didn't use the vacuum cleaner, but I love that idea. Yep. And and it's, you know, this is, this is not the most difficult pest to manage. And we've also seen that in its third year, second to third year of full infestation in an area, predators have begun to knock back the population to the point where in Cecil County, which was our first county to receive them graciously from Pennsylvania, first year there were some, second year was awful and they were everywhere. 
into the third and now fourth year, it's rather quiet. And that's because predators have figured out that it is a reliable food source. One of the questions we had received from a listener when we posted that we were going to be talking about spotted lanternflies was, people go through customs. And if you are ill, you have to be declared, apparently. If the importation helped bring this carry-on with it, is there a process that the Department of Ag uses to bring imports into the United States to help prevent this sort of item happening? Yes. And the USDA is extremely vigilant. And so at all of the ports, if you're coming back on international travel just as a citizen, you'll run the gauntlet of customs and you have to declare whether you you know, have any plants or fruits or nuts with you. And there's usually a USDA inspector, customs inspector, usually through USDA, who's walking around with a dog. And maybe they're sniffing for drugs, but really they're sniffing for dates and plants and you know other things that someone might be bringing in. And the same thing happens at industrial and commercial ports of entry. It's one of the ways that this was spotted and was able to be tracked back. Now, uh, just because we find some doesn't mean we find all. And that's what happened in this case. Right. Something always slips through and you try not to, but everybody does their best. Interesting. I had no idea that dogs were being used for this. In my mind, growing up in the 80s and 90s, I remember the fruit fly outbreak and fruits. Yes. And so this is very similar. I had no idea that dogs were being used to help detect fruit and vegetable and predator issues. Fascinating. They are and they're better than we are at it. Very interesting. If we want to find more information, where do we do that? So again, I'd I'd point people back to our website, mda.maryland.gov, just to see what we're doing and what our our spotted lanternfly programs are all about. You'll also find on the website an informational video from me out in the field on the day that our team was out playing uh, Ghostbusters with their lanternfly gear on. There's so much information on University of Maryland site and, and especially Penn State, which truly was the epicenter for this. And so before you go, I have to ask this last question. Is there anything else on our horizon that we need to be watching for? Wow. What I'm thinking here are the borers. If I read everything right, the next one was the borers coming in? We've been through borers. We've been through fungus, which has killed a number of tree species. We're eternally seeking and working with our partners to seek out anything that may be hampering a harvest or affecting a stand of trees. And, you know, the the thing with all these is if it's a fungus or something like a, a borer, um, if we don't know about it, we'll know about it because of its effects. You know, yet yes, you may be out there screening and you'll see a new bug and, and that can be a sign. But very often you get reports of a stand of ash trees succumbing to something. And then you go out and investigate and realize, geez, there, there are all these holes. And after a while, when you harvest the trees and figure out what it is, now you've identified a new pest. So it takes a while for kind of our eco-sleuths to determine it. But that, that's one of the reasons that we ask the general public. It's kind of like the crime fighting. If you see something, say something. If something doesn't look right, um, if your plant is behaving in, in a way that is unexpected, let us know because you you may be seeing something that we've not experienced before. And once we can identify it, we can put our resources behind it and work with our university partners and USDA, et cetera. But yeah, I always ask folks to just stay aware, stay vigilant and uh, communicate with us if you see something. And just because you're in an urban area does not mean that you are exempt from this. 
Exactly. And look, most of the reports that we're receiving now about Lanternfly are coming from Baltimore City and the D.C. suburbs, which are seeing the Lanternfly for the first time. And I just attended a, a meeting in Baltimore City a couple of weeks ago, and they had inundated Harbor Place. And it was it was fascinating to see them and hearing reports of folks saying on their, you know, their 22nd floor office buildings, they're seeing lanternflies. And and how are they getting up there just from updrift and breezes and everything else? They're certainly not flying 24 floors into the air. But, you know, it's, it's that type of thing. We're getting those calls because that's unusual for Baltimore City. And it's great that people are reporting it. I love it. When something works, it's just beautiful, isn't it? It's great when it works, but everything I would put the asterisk is a work in progress. So, you know, what we're learning about the lanternfly, what we're learning about, you know, other diseases that are affecting trees, invasive plants that we're seeing everywhere, the invasive blue catfish, which is wreaking havoc in the bay. These are all things that we're learning about, and then we're kicking in with mitigation strategies. But yes, everything's a continuum. Kevin Addix, thank you for joining us. You're currently the serving Secretary of Agriculture for the state of Maryland. I appreciate your time and effort and thank you for being part of us here on Raising Connections this morning. Very happy to and thank you for what you're doing. You're raising awareness, which is critical. Thank you. And thank you for being our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed your cup of coffee and you're ready to start your day. 